You have arrived at Unhidden. Produced by Hetty Vermont, we're about bringing cannabis in all its forms out of the dark ages of prohibition and into the light of a world which can definitely use some help from this awesome plant. I'm your host, Catherine Bloom. No story of cannabis legalization in Vermont would be complete without the name Laura Subin. Laura has been in the news, at public meetings, and on the ground at the State House advocating for legislation which supports a healthy, locally oriented commercial cannabis economy and which rights the many wrongs of decades of prohibition. Now, a little technical note I interviewed Laura at the Hetty Vermont studio where there was a lot of activity, both of the two and four legged variety. So, if you hear some bumps and knocks in the background, just chalk it up to what is technically known as a dynamic work environment. I direct the Vermont Coalition to regulate marijuana and we used the name marijuana back in 2014 because to match, to track all the laws because at the time all the legislation on the books used the term marijuana. So right there is an evolution. If we were naming the organization now, it would not, it would, we'd use the word cannabis. Have but, you thought about rebranding? Well, no, because we are a political advocacy entity. Mm -hmm. And once we finally accomplish our goal of full legalization in Vermont, we will not continue to exist, I would not expect. So I think that's one of the things. When we started in 2014, there weren't all of these organizations. I don't remember when Hetty started, but... Um, three years ago. About, so there wasn't Hetty, there wasn't Vermont Cannabis Solutions. There were some other entities that are now no longer around. And so as far as visibility, for a while, the Vermont Coalition was probably the preeminent organizing vehicle in the state. And I, I signed on for a six-month contract five years ago. <laughs> is Surprise! the background of that. <laughs> and, um, but in the first year, the first organizing year, which was 2014, I was traveling around the state, going everywhere, going to Rotary Clubs, going to panel discussions, going to businesses, to um, meeting with government entities, all kinds of different stakeholders to just get the cannabis conversation going and try to um, pave the way for the, the real systems advocacy that came in the years. So at that time, you I probably would have been one of the more visible people in the state. Now, I think that at this point, my role has become somewhat, somewhat more unique because I don't have a horse in the race as far as cannabis industry once it does emerge. I, I just want to let it be legal for all of you to go do your thing. So I think that really has changed because I'm, I'm not a farmer, I'm not a business owner, I'm not a platform for those businesses. And um, so I think that the, the visibility has really changed at the Vermont Coalition as it should. And so in the later years, it's become more the insider baseball game in Montpelier. Mm -hmm. so. How did you get involved? Where, 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 how did they find you for that six month contract? What was your background? So I am an attorney. I, I saw an ad in, and I, I, were, I did consulting work. I've done consulting work with nonprofits for a long time. Um, and so I, and I do, so I'm familiar with contract work. Six month part time was right up my alley. Um, and I have a background in criminal justice reform. So I've worked, I worked in the domestic, anti-domestic violence field for almost 30 years and um, was the executive director of, it was then Women Helping Better Women in Burlington, um, now it's Steps to End Domestic 
violence. Um, and so I uh, had a lot of familiarity with the um, Vermont nonprofit scene, and I, so I knew a lot of executive directors, and I had done a lot of system ad systems advocacy around domestic violence issues, so I had some um, history in the state house too, and so putting that package together, I bid on the contract, and I got it. Nice. <laughs> and was did you have any personal background experience with cannabis, or was this really a professional? Step? Ask me no questions. I'll tell you no <laughs> lies. <laughs> um, this was really my whole focus is criminal justice reform. I absolutely think that people should be allowed to make the safer choice of consuming cannabis rather than alcohol or in addition to alcohol legally. And so um, absolutely as a citizen of the world, I care about that right. But I have also, um, this for me, the horrible things that have been done in the name of cannabis prohibition and, and the war on drugs more broadly is really where my energy came from around wanting to be on the front lines of this issue. So 2014 to now isn't actually all that long for colossal systems change. Are you feeling like this has been successful? Are you feeling measured in your response to the whole thing? That is a great question. Well, when achieving legalization was was very exciting, and I do feel like that was successful to actually be the first to do it through a legislature. So it's good to look back and hear you say that it hasn't been such a long time because it feels like a long time. And it's been enormously frustrating in that the the public sentiment in Vermont has been there all along. And so if we could have had a referendum, we would have had a successful referendum as early as 2014, 2015. And so having to work through through the legislature and all that that brings has been, has been frustrating. So I would say it's mixed. I feel like there have been some real missed opportunities and we could have been ahead of Massachusetts and, and Maine and we lost that chance of being the first with legal sales in, the, in New England. And so that, that feels like a, um, a disappointment. I think that there, if, if the stars had aligned a little bit differently, that could have happened and would have been really good for Vermont. Yeah, so without naming names and you know, <laughs> throwing people under the bus, how did that get held up? Well, I'm happy to throw a couple of key people under the bus, and their names are Mitzi Johnson and Phil Scott. And mm -hmm. so I think that that is really, those were the primary obstacles. For, so, for a long time, the House just would not do the work of having the committee hearings. And so they, for years, they were able to complain, well, we haven't had time to fully vet this. And the reason they didn't have time is because they didn't make time. And so it's this legislative myth. And it was because Mitzi Johnson, the Speaker of the House, has never liked this issue and has never made it a priority and has, in my opinion, stood in the way of progress on the issue. The Senate has passed it now, what, I think six times. And then we switched from when I started doing this work, we had Governor Shumlin, who was a uh, cannabis policy reform advocate. And then we switched to Phil Scott, and who is obviously not a big supporter. And so there was another lost, loss of momentum in that gubernatorial transition which was frustrating. Um, I did, I was appointed to the Governor's Marijuana Advisory Committee. I was appointed to the Tax and Regulate Subcommittee. And that process was another um, series of frustrations. Mm -hmm. It was, that, that commission was ridiculously weighted with 
prohibitionists and people in support of maintaining the status quo. And so I think that of the commission itself and all of its subcommittees, I was one of maybe two or three people that were outspokenly in favor of policy reform. Everyone else was wanted to wanted to stop cannabis policy reform. So that Nonetheless, and, I, and there were some supporters, I would say, Kyat Sampson, uh, who was at the time the commissioner of the Department of Tax, was um, open and took the, took the message um, seriously that that commission was, supposed to, was not supposed to be about whether to legalize, it was supposed to be about how, and I think on the Tax and Regulate subcommittee, we did try to do that, but the highway, roadway safety and the health subcommittees were all about why we shouldn't move forward. On a personal level, when you're up against that much opposition, how do you get up every morning and put your game face on and get in there when you're in the minority? Or did you feel like you're in the minority? Or was it like, well, I'm on this commission, I'm in the minority in this room, but I know that there's all this vast population of people behind me outside the room who are going to support this? Like, how did you think about it? Yeah, I think that I was, I was proud to be the the token pro-reform appointee on that commission. And so it made it for me easy to be emboldened, to speak out. And I felt like I had an obligation to a lot of people, those I knew and those I didn't, to be at the table and keep coming forward with how the issues that they were discussing would impact small farms and communities disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition. And so that was a challenge that was easy for me to embrace in that room. And, and you, you know, ironically, in that setting, I actually had a seat at the table. It's harder to sit in the committee rooms in the legislature where you sit around the table and listen to people who know a lot less about this policy make decisions that are going to impact people you care about. Yeah, <laughs> so. for sure. Now, in Vermont, we have the interesting social justice piece of not having the vast populations of communities of color that we see in other states who have been impacted by the war on drugs. But we certainly have people who have been negatively impacted, both people who are low income, people with communities of color, but it looks different here than it does in say New York or Chicago. So can you lay out for people who might not know what the social justice component looks like in Vermont? Sure, well you sort of already said a big piece of it. Blacks were being arrested at more than four times the rate of white people before decriminalization. And so we do have a racial justice component, even though it's smaller numbers. So there's a Vermont arrest rates. Vermont arrest rates okay. more than four times, which was worse than the national average as far as the ACLU in 2013 came out with a, st a national study of black versus white ar arrest rates. Those were, they were looking at those two populations in particular. And Vermont was worse than the national average. And in the worst Vermont County, which was Rutland County, black people were being, being, were being arrested at 16 times the rate of white people in spite of reporting the same use rates. And so we did have a staggering racial justice problem, even though the numbers were, were small. And then we have other data that, that related data. For example, there was a great study published called Driving While Black and Brown in Vermont that documented racial bias in police stops in the state that, that were horrifying. And so with before legalization, when the order of marijuana alone could be, the, whether it was true or not, could be the justification for a, a, a stop and search, 
that was also having racial justice implications. And so I think it's too easy to say, well, there are, there are such small numbers of community of colors, communities of color that we don't need to worry about that in the same way as other places do, because we have to remember that they were, those communities were still radically disproportionately impacted in Vermont. That said, the numbers are small, and I do think that um, you need to look at economic justice as well. And so, for example, in the years of decriminalization, about so that that began in 2013 until legalization in early 2018, and there were upwards of 5,000 citations, civil citations issued for marijuana violations. The average fee associated with those violations were 250 to 500 dollars something like that which is a slap on the wrist if you're affluent it's a drag it you know it's a bad day if you're making minimum wage it's a week worth of your earnings and can have serious consequences and similarly the consequences if for subsidized housing for a low level marijuana either citation or, or arrest or that kind of things or or all the public federally funded subsidized programs are very serious and so people who have more money aren't impacted by that in the same way. So when we look at social justice now, we need to look at racial justice, but we also need to look at ec economic justice and communities where those demographics are the most prevalent, um, you can still do that in Vermont. So part of what you're saying is that when someone who's low income would get dinged by the cops, it's not just the, the cost of the citation, but it's the subsequent impact on other programs that they might have access to that help keep them afloat that they wouldn't then have access to because of that. Exactly, okay. all the collateral consequences associated it. And even right now with the, our, the legalization scheme that we have, if you live in federally subsidized housing, there is no legalization for you at home. You can't consume cannabis at home, And if, whereas if I own my house, I, I can, and that's not fair. I know that one significant aspect of dealing with that injustice is expungements. How are we doing on expungements, and how are they rolling forward, and is there a better way for Vermont to be doing it? We are doing pretty well. So you, at, right now in Vermont, you're, you're eligible to have your conviction expunged for what is now legal. However, at this moment, you have to petition the court and, it, and pay any surcharges you might have. Last year, the legislature did do away with expungement fees. There had been a $90 fee associated with expungements. That's now gone away, which is great. There are other fees imposed by the courts. For, so anytime you've had a conviction, you, you're charged a surcharge. And I think that's $140, something like that. And those are still on the books. And so there are still monetary barriers to expungement. But marijuana possession crimes that are now legal, you're entitled to expungement. So that's way better than if you weren't. Right. <laughs> there are bills on, on the wall um, in both the House and the Senate that would make mar marijuana conviction expungement automatic so that you wouldn't have to petition the court, the court would just do it and they'd be automatic and free for what is now legal. And I really hope that we don't lose sight of those in this year's session and let's get it all done. And, and when we finally bring tax and get tax and regulate done, let's not forget right. about expungement. And what that would also do is decriminalize between one and two ounces, which is important criminal justice reform as well because a lot of it's boring to explain why, but it does. It would create another a decrim of the of, of the amount just above what's legal, which I think is also progress. 
I would like to see a reduction in the penalties going uh, uh, across the board up from there, which had been in some legislative proposals and have been, has not gotten airtime in, in recent years. I really think and hope that the advocacy community will continue to prioritize criminal justice reform as we work towards tax and regulate, because to me, that, that is the most important aspect of legalization and, and getting justice around this issue. Yeah. What else in terms of criminal justice? What are people potentially not aware of? Well, I think maybe pe people don't understand that the penalties, when you get just beyond the possession, the legal possession limits or the, and the legal cultivation limits, they didn't change at all. So you can get very quickly into felony territory if you're just above the limits. Similarly, any of those crimes, they are not eligible for expungement. And so people who were convicted right now of, of possession of more than an ounce of cannabis still can't have their record expunged, still have to answer on an application for employment or federal, or federal subsidies or whatever. They need, they, that conviction is still following them around in a way that's extremely detrimental. And so people maybe aren't thinking about that. Now that we have legalization, you would wish that it was, I would wish that, uh, Hetty Vermont would probably wish that it meant legal like tomatoes. And we are still a very long way from legal like tomatoes. Right. Yeah. And we heard a lot of people say, it's a plant. Yeah. Why are we bothering with regulation at all? And I certainly understand, though, that you have the legacy of prohibition and the amount of misinformation that's been shoveled down people's throats for a really long period of time. And that takes time to overcome. You know, going back to the whole arc of my perception of how quickly this has all happened, it actually reminds me a lot of the arc of same-sex marriage legalization because it's a thing which was in the closet and practically inconceivable for a really long period yeah. of time with many, many unfortunate human-level consequences to yeah. that. And then they've been chipping away for decades. As something starts to turn, the pace with which it all turned around struck yeah. me as kind of remarkable, yeah. which is one of those things that occasionally gives me hope yeah. <laughs> for the arc of justice being yeah. you know, in the right, heading in the right direction. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the, it's the incremental creeping, creeping, creeping pace. And then there, is, there can be a turning point, then, and then the pace accelerates. Yeah. I think that the, it's a good um, analogy. Uh, some people have taken exception, I know, in the marriage equality movement to the, to the comparison because they think of marriage equality as such a more as a much more fundamental human rights issue mm -hmm. um, so just to flag that but I ha think that um, there is another parallel to be made in the compromises that were made along the way that some people thought were worth it and the right thing to do for incremental change so civil unions mm -hmm. but some people opposed it because it wasn't marriage equality it wasn't marriage right similarly the terrible medical program we compromised on in 04 and then decrim was another compromise and then legalization without tax and regulate is another compromise and so there are plenty of people and I respect their points of view that thought those compromise those interim positions were not worth it and that that it was better to hold, would have been better to hold out for full our full civil rights and equality to alcohol, mm -hmm. I guess you'd look at it. In the same way some people hated civil unions and didn't support civil unions because they only wanted marriage. Yeah, so. yeah. What was interesting to me about, the, I know this is a diversion, but it, when we pass civil unions, it happened so quickly, there was that huge social backlash and that it seemed like the community wasn't prepared for any form of it so that 
you could say that civil unions caused a, a, a social a rupture in the social fabric, which it was either a positive thing because yeah. it moved things forward, or there was that bit of a backlash. Yeah. But it did spark a conversation that seemed to me, at least, to smooth the way a little bit for when we did take up same-sex marriage for real and real marriage equality. Civil unions the sky didn't fall yeah and so sort of much like decrim the sky didn't fall yeah. we have a medical program the sky didn't fall and it becomes easier for people to contemplate a more fully just suite yeah. of legislation i think that's right and of course while we're on this tangent vermont went first on civil unions but wasn't brave enough to go first all the way to to marriage equity yeah. and similarly we were the first legislature to get to legalization but we didn't legalize a full tax and regulate so i think vermont's willing to go first to a certain extent <laughs> exactly and I, you know i've heard that in the energy community of right. like people trying to push a carbon tax like well we want to wait until some other folks do it because yeah. we're so small what is you know we can't handle it which right. is a total digression yep. but that's all right um, all these issues are I, social justice re issues interrelated they really are they really are so we're looking at s54 being revived again re re reconsidered this this upcoming session what do you like about it and what are you hoping we can still get our get our hands into and and tweak i like the the can that it creates a cannabis control board um, and takes it out of a government the, the the previous proposals that was really sort of the biggest change with s54 we're all sort of used to it now after a year of hearings about it but this it was the first proposal that created a, a separate entity to oversee cannabis and i think that's good policy and will protect an emergency emerging cannabis industry from too much change as the administrations in Montpelier change. So that so I, I like that model um, and I like the fact that there's a recognition that this is a this is an emerging emerging industry and so there needs to be some flexibility. So if you put too much in legislation, spell it out in legislation, it's much harder to fix. That said, it's also one of my biggest concerns about S54 because it's going to make a huge difference who is ultimately appointed to that cannabis control board. The Senate version only had three people on it, and I was very glad that the House brought it back up till to five um, because I think we're really that's going to make a huge difference who ends up being on that board and and how much real input they take from which kinds of stakeholders in the rules that they roll out. Um, that's a plus and minus. I think that some of the social equity provisions are are good. There is, you know, there are language that minor possession can, crimes from from barring people from access to emerging in, emerging industries. There's language that requires prioritizing minority and women-owned businesses, um, and for various considerations for businesses that will come in communities that are disproportionately impacted by prohibition. So I think all of that is very positive. There are some really, I think there was a lot of thoughtful work done around protecting the smallest farms and, smallest, and small farmers or farms that want to just add a small cannabis crop to maybe a larger farm that grows other things. And I think that that really was a lot of hard work that was successful advocacy from the original proposals once upon a time that didn't even, weren't even going to allow any homegrown to saying, wait a minute, people should be able to grow and sell a small amount of cannabis on their own property without a, uh, without 
regulations and um, fees and all of that that would really be a barrier to access for the smallest farmers. So those that that's probably I think that one of the strongest pieces of the legislation. Nice. And as we're preparing to come descend upon the Capitol in January, what would you like to see the average interested individual, so not not a passionate cannabis activist necessarily, but someone who cares, who wants to come, who wants to meet their legislator, wants to you know, sort of pony up their opinion, what would you want to hear those folks talking about? I want to hear those folks talking about consumer safety. And I think that there has been misinformation and valid information about the changes in potency of cannabis over the years of the different types of cannabis products i think there's a lot of confusion for people that aren't entrenched in this about what's dabbing and what's vaping and and people really don't what's shatter people don't know or understand these products and the same way you wouldn't want to walk into a liquor store and not and just grab a bottle and hope for the best you might have a beer and you might have 150 proof something I think there is real consumer safety and consumer interest. So you may not want to. You want? Do you want? You want to know? Is this going to be a light buzz? I can go skiing or go for a walk or do go to the grocery store or I might be sitting on the couch for an hour. People want that information, and as they experiment with different cannabis products, to see what they're getting, and and of course also for safety, so that people don't overdo it, and that we can they can, can know exactly the size of an edible product they're getting and how much cannabis is in that. So I think that for the average Vermonter is one of the most important things. And for youth to be able to have conversations with younger people, with teenagers that are just starting to maybe be experimenting with cannabis. But my hope would be that eventually you could talk about these regulated products are safe and here's how we know and here's what's in them and here's these other products you may not know what's in the oil that you bought on the internet for your vape cartridge so don't be an idiot and don't use that product so <laughs> i want to have conversations with the youth like that <laughs> right i'm going to feel like my great public awareness campaign is titled don't be a stupid potter <laughs> yeah, and there are plenty of smart potheads out yeah, there. We yeah, know that yeah. for a fact. <laughs> Smartest people I went to college with, definitely. Also, I wanted to check in. We've got the Women in Cannabis Summit coming up in April. We're excited to have you participate in that. Why do you think it's necessary to have a summit specifically devoted to women in cannabis? I think, like any industry, we are still a far way from gender equity, and I fear that in the emerging cannabis industry, we're going to recreate a lot of the same problems that we've had and that we already see in the states that have gone before us. The vast majority of cannabis businesses are owned by men, and I'd like to see that change. So on a personal level, have you had any blowback for your your choice of career, well, you know, parents of your kids' friends or community members not being comfortable with what you've been up to? I have felt it in my own community, especially in the earlier years. I was one of the first uh, public advocates. I was on the local news all the time. I was in a lot of the print media a lot, and I would get reactions from in my own community. Oh, I saw you on the news. And, you can un and by the way people would say that, there would either be judgment or excitement. Um, and for me personally, with my kids and with my professional identity, I found myself wanting to, to um, make it very clear that I was in this for criminal justice reform reasons and not just to advocate for cannabis users, advocate for cannabis users. And 
I have a six-year-old daughter who learned how to say criminal justice reform very early on, and now I, hopefully she's a budding activist herself, but not a cannabis consumer <laughs> as of yet. <laughs> but yeah, I think there is a, there it, there was a lot of, there was that concern. It was also as far as the systems advocacy, I was uh, somewhat known in the state house for the work that I did around domestic violence issues, and I would walk in, and that would be my identity, and then that changed to walking in as the crazy pot lady, and that was a big shift that I had to learn to be comfortable with and to continue to feel very good about the, the social justice, economic justice, racial justice, civil rights reasons why I thought this issue was important enough to be the person to, out there, to be a spokesperson. I also recognize that I think one of the reasons that I was brought on to be that spokesperson was because of my democrat demographics. I'm a lawyer, I'm a mother of three kids, I have all the things that are, when you, on paper I look pretty good to counter the stigma about cannabis advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to wrap back around actually the gender question for a second. Why do you think it is that we've seen in the states that have legalized and the arc of how the businesses have gone, why is it that female leadership is, the percentage of female leaders is going down? When in fact, you know, it didn't start out quite as disproportionate as in say, high tech. What do you think happens? I don't have all the data on that. I think that cultural paradigm shifts are slow. And even though we have had a huge amount of progress, I don't think the progress has gone as quickly for women as it has for men as far as accepting cannabis use, cannabis, having cannabis as the focus of your professional identity. I think women developing their professional identities while we've come an awfully long way, it still has different and unique challenges than it does for men in general. We know that it's harder for women to get capital in any business, and so I think that's probably proving true in the cannabis industry as well. So I think that all the barriers for women in business are there times stigma about women in cannabis. Yeah, and women in general being held to all kinds of societal double standards or higher degree of standard because of how we view the responsibilities of motherhood and whole concept of femaleness in general, which is not something we've really been able to puncture quite I, yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of times, like the the moms should be staying with the kids or doing or whatever, and it's, and the dads are out partying, which is absolutely ridiculous. But I think that there is an an old stereotype about that that persists. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of stereotypes, <laughs> families. So this is just a fun question. So you have a brother. I do. Andrew Subin, <laughs> one of the founders of Vermont Cannabis Solutions. Guilty. Yeah, right. <laughs> so like, is there, is there any, any kind of family cannabis rivalry in terms of your effectiveness <laughs> in what you do? Or are there, your there are, are your so many still? jokes that I can make about family cannabis rivalry. I don't even know really where to go with that one. Are but you, are your, he, he wins on a lot of fronts. Let's just. <laughs> attorney and representing cannabis businesses and so we are both engaged in in on this issue but in very different ways so I think it's a, a camaraderie more than a competition it has been fun for me Andrew came here from Washington State where which would obviously legalize first with Colorado at the, the one of the two earliest states to legalize and that year I had just gotten involved in the policy advocacy in Vermont he still lived in Washington and so I would have lots of 
of conversations about him while he was living in Washington and he was walking to stores and I was banging my head against the wall of the state house <laughs> and so and then when he moved here it was really fun to continue those conversations in a professional way and yeah. so no I think it's a pretty it's a, it's a pretty friendly competition <laughs> your mom's holiday letters like what my kids are up to <laughs> well and then I just have her put cannabis uh, criminal justice reform right, right. <laughs> I gotta get let my daughter write the holiday letter <laughs> Um, so let's say let's say we nail it. Let's say the best case scenario happens, and we 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 got a great tax and regulate system in place, and we've improved medical, and we've done the whole shebang, and we've expungements out the wazoo, and your job is done, and you get to close your doors. What do you want to do the next? Do you have do you have fantasies about what you want to be spending your time on? For me, it's still criminal justice system reform. Um, I have the honor to to direct a foundation, the Pennywise Foundation, um, and we do we do grant making and technical assistance locally, nationally, and internationally. Then we value smart approaches to 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 policy, to programming, and to organizational sustainability on a bunch of different levels. I am delighted to work myself out of a job specifically on this issue and and have more time to devote to other progressive causes that I that I care a lot about. There is an absolute mountain to continue to climb on criminal justice reform issues in particular. Not speaking for the Vermont Coalition to regulate marijuana, but personally, I'm a proponent of legalization for of all drugs. I think we need public health responses to public health issues of substance misuse disorders and the opioid epidemic and um, all of those horrors. I do not think the criminal legal system should be used to address those problems. And so there are still many, many, many miles to go on those fronts. And so that's where I'd like to continue working and leave the rest of you to take care of the baby industry. <laughs> Well, Laura, thank you so much, and thank you for all of your hard work, and I'm sure many folks will be excited to see you in January at the State House. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me do this. That's it for this episode of Unhidden. Thanks so much to Laura Subin for her time and her tireless advocacy. Thanks to West End Blend for the excellent theme song. Thanks also to the whole team at Hedy Vermont. Monica Donovan, Erin Doble, Kelly McDowell, Christina Hall, Karen Santarello, and our canine overlords, Oso, Potato, and Luna. You can visit Hedy Vermont on our website, hedyvermont.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find the Unhidden podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever fine podcasts are sold. We'll see you next time.